Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the focus is Philadelphia Public Schools' aging facilities. Schools began August 27th, but after decades of problems with lead, paint, asbestos, and environmental concerns, are they ready? If it was in my home, it would be an emergency. It would require for me and my children to have to be removed. And these conditions are conditions that we have to get a handle on. We have been working hard all summer. The recent effort to clean things up, the money spent, and what is needed to deal with the aging school facilities once and for all. She's following Philadelphia tax dollars and exposing failures along the way. If you say that you're going to tax something for for a specific thing, you need to spend it on that. Controller Rebecca Reinhart talks about her audit of sexual misconduct policies, a lost $33 million, and what's next. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the school district of Philadelphia's old and crumbling facilities. The average school building is 70 years old. That's seven zero years old. And after years of inadequate funding, inadequate maintenance, and a recent investigative report, there's renewed effort to finally deal with problems caused by lead paint, asbestos, mold, and much more. Public outcry can make a difference. That's Pennsylvania State Senator Vincent Hughes. He went on a school tour recently and convinced the Commonwealth to give $7 million to the school district to help with a summer cleanup focused on 40-plus schools. But the true cost to get it all done is in the billions. You can't say that education should be our number one priority and not fund it. So how's the summer cleanup going? School starts August 27th. Will the district be ready? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Jerry Roseman. He's Director of Environmental Science and Occupational Safety and Health for the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, Health and Welfare Fund and Union. We also have Lee Wack. He's spokesman for the School District of Philadelphia. Finally, we have Lisa Haver, co-founder of the Alliance for Philadelphia Public Schools, and Kendra Brooks. She's a coordinator for Our City, Our Schools. She's also an active school district parent. Jerry, I wanted to start with you. Lay out what you found as an issue within the school district facilities. In looking at the schools for the last number of years and over the past couple of months, we've recognized that there are a number of schools with asbestos, lead, and mold problems. We've been working with the school district on addressing these issues. We've got about 31 schools with mold issues, some dozens of schools with asbestos work that's needed, and some modernization work, and about 45 schools where uh, lead paint issues have to be addressed. They're serious problems, and these these conditions are conditions that we have to get a handle on, And we have to be able to make some real progress on before kids and staff come back to school. And we have to continue over the next year and more because these are not problems that will be solved immediately. 
Yeah. And so, Lee, tell me what the school district has done to get ready for the next school year. Absolutely. Well, we at the school district are excited about the upcoming school year. We have been working hard all summer to address some of the issues that exist, whether they be with lead paint stabilization, addressing areas of of possible mold, addressing asbestos materials that are in some of our schools. The reality is our our infrastructure is aging. We have our average school is 70 years old. And so we do need a lot of work on our schools. The governor allocated $7.6 million mm-hmm. to address lead paint stabilization. And we are working hand in hand with Jerry and many other folks in order to, one, talk to communities, two, uh, work with principals and, and get this work started. And three, make sure that on August 27th, when students come back to schools, these schools are safe, healthy environments for students to learn and and be in school every day. So uh, we are well aware of the challenges. We're thankful for the community and parents that have worked with us. Uh, I was recently at AS Jinx. Uh, Jerry was there as well. And we um, had about 25 parents um, and, and children there in order to hear about the work. But we'll be continuing to communicate We'll be continuing to do this work uh, because all of our parents, students, and staff deserve better school buildings. Yeah, and when you hear this, I mean, this has been an ongoing issue, but it kind of blew up uh, in the past few months. There's money being allocated. Do you feel progress is being made? And I want to start with you, Kendra. You have your your kid is is fairly young. Yeah, I have a ten year old and a fourteen year old that is currently still at a Philadelphia public school. I'm glad they're doing something, but I'm certain it's not enough. I feel that if there are 44 or 45 odd schools that are currently getting remediated or whatever is happening there. What about the other 210? And is there a solid plan? Um, because this is an emergency. If it was in my home, it would be an emergency. It would require for me and my children to have to be removed. So I think that the city and the state should treat it as an emergency and also come up with a triage plan to make sure all our city schools are safe. You know, we have this 10-year tax abatement that we need to get money from. So mm-hmm. if we eliminate 10-year tax abatement, that's mm-hmm. enough money for a 10-year plan to help with structural conditions of our public schools. So I think that we really need to um, come up with a plan. And so, Lisa, I know there's been a lot of groundwork on this. I mean, teachers, parents, um, advocates, everybody's been working. So what can have you guys been doing to sort of, like, get the resources? Because some of these schools, the amount of work that needs to be done, I mean, millions and millions of dollars. It's a lot of money. Um, you know, my children attended Philadelphia Public Schools. I worked for the school district as a teacher in a number of schools, and I saw these conditions years ago, decades ago, really. This has been an ongoing problem. You know, I'm trying to be optimistic. You know, our, our organization, we go to all the uh, SRC meetings, which are over now, and we, we have a new Board of Education, and we're, you know, we want to be optimistic, and we think the people coming in are, are going to make a commitment to the public schools, but we have to make sure that the school district listens to parents. And that's a problem that we have seen, not just on this issue, but on a number of issues that, you know, the issues of SRC transparency of, you know, uh, lip service to parent engagement. We're hoping the new board is is going to take that in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And I'll give Lee a chance to respond to that. Do you feel like the communication between parents, I mean, because you mentioned that specifically as a big key part of this, this effort that's going to, it's been rolled out this summer. Well, I'll give an example. So for the schools that we have pain stabilization work going on right now, um, for those six schools that we have pain stabilization work going on in, uh, we had uh, meetings, community meetings at the school before all of that work took place. But we, we agree that 
uh, communication needs to be better. And so that's something that we've worked on. Uh, we worked on a whole set of protocols, and Jerry was instrumental in, in those protocols, and other advocates were instrumental. Um, other parents, uh, the Healthy Schools Initiative, uh, various groups were instrumental in making sure that we have a better communication. We released our fourth report of the summer about our building work. And so all of those reports are on our website, and they do talk about addressing issues of mold, asbestos, uh, lead paint stabilization, and um, the like, and the other renovations that we're doing. Uh, we are doing some critical work to improve classrooms, our early literacy classroom modernization. So we're going into the schools that have the lowest literacy rates and we're improving the pre-K to third grade classrooms. And when you're making these improvements, a lot of the facilities issues will Correct. be Correct. And yeah. that's like new paint, new lighting, new furniture, refinished floors, and all that type of work. And that's very important to us because we have a, a, mm -hmm. a top goal, what we call our anchor goal of making sure that 100% of our eight-year-olds are reading on grade level. So that yeah. is one of our anchor goals. And so we're focused on that work. Um, and we've made progress, but we have learned yeah. through speaking with folks like Lisa, Jerry, um, Kendra, that it's important that we communicate even better. And, and so we are focused on doing that. And so, and, and Jerry, can, can you talk about some of the, the fixes? I mean, you've listed and talked about some of the um, ways to have major impact. Um, and Kendra raised, you know, you know, issues that there's a lot of other schools that still have issues. So let me, I think that this is a good place to kind of be a little bit critical of some of what Lee said, but also supportive of some of it and to pick up on what Kendra and Lisa are saying. We're with the lead situation, for instance, the district identified 40 schools. Mm. There really are many more than that that need attention. And we've been working with parents, teachers and others to identify additional ones and have. So one of those things that you're exactly right about, Kendra, is that we need to be part of a planning process. Mm -hmm. To their credit, that is going on with the district. And as Lee mentioned, we've been sitting at the table with the district around the lead issue in these 40, 45, 50 schools and kind mm -hmm. of growing. That's parents sitting there. That's the union sitting there. It's members of the Healthy Schools Coalition. That model is the model that I think Kendra – Lisa and and I've been talking about and Lee is is mentioning that model's not being transferred right now though to, to other the, issues the to, other and issues. other schools and it should be it's something that we are pursuing right now so the solutions one is to take this success and to to expand it the second is to thinking about the emergency nature this is something that the coalition and the unions have worked with the senator on senator Hughes it's to focus on the immediate, urgent, critical needs. That's kind of like maintenance and operation. Yeah. To expand that because that's where kids are in school today. And the third is planning. It is planning about how yeah. we're going to do this. Our voices need to be at the table with the district's voice. We're partners in this. We should be. It's yeah. parents. It's communities. It's unions and staff. It's it's the district. This district. And so, um, Kendra, when I think about this, I mean, I read stories about kids actually having real world issues. Have your kids had any issues? And when you and, and if not, have you when you hear these stories? I mean, as a mom, what do you what goes through your mind? Well, I personally, my daughter went through lead. I had construction done on my home 
and she ended up with lead poisoning, admitted to the hospital twice. She had to get needles every two hours for a week. And she also had to be uh, go through evaluation for early intervention. She didn't need it, thank God. But some children, I was that was my part, too. I'm glad you asked that. Um, are there any uh, plans to figure out if any uh, interventions need to be put in place for kids that were exposed to this lead and asbestos within the school district over these periods, over these times? Because we're saying we want all our um, kindergarten through third graders to be reading on level. But what about these kids that have been exposed to lead over years? And is it anything being done to assess that or to see if there are any needs for additional supports? I'm talking about in terms of reading and literacy and cognition and things like that, that that lead immediately affects children. Yeah. And I think that it doesn't even cross your mind initially if your kid is exhibiting some issues. Um, So you don't even really know the symptoms. You just know they're acting up or something like that or they're having issues. So parents may not even have thought of that, right? I mean, or it could have a, been attributed to discipline issues, mm-hmm. which would have been reflection of home, but it could have been exposure to lead as well. So I was wondering, is there any research or any work being done to find this out? Because we're talking about K through five, but I've, I've, my oldest child is twenty eight years old. She went through the same school as my ten year old. You know, yeah. I don't have any issues with my direct kids, but I'm thinking about the behaviors that we continue to see with the behavior and discipline issues that we have in public schools. Is any of it attributed to exposure to Has lead? Has there been any work on this issue? Do you guys know? I mean, is this a part of the next step, part of the planning step? Well, no. we do have a um, – the school district does have a physician um, that that we do work with on these issues. We have partnered with the, with the health department as well. But uh, I would say on the, on the list of schools that we are addressing, one of the things we're focused on is schools where there are children that are – six years old, around that range, because that is where lead paint can be the most harmful. And so we are prioritizing those schools, um, and we are prioritizing schools that were built before 1978 because that's where you have lead paint. Uh, after 1978, lead paint was not Illegal, is yeah. not used. Mm-hmm. And so, so we are focused and we're being intentional about that. And then we're also focusing on schools that have over 500 square feet of area that has lead paint that is either peeling, flaking, or, or or the like. And so we are prioritizing in that manner to get this work done, and we will continue to do the work. And it's we're not saying that we're only going to focus on these, what is now, 45 schools. We're not saying that's all we're going to focus on. We're saying that those are the top priority, and we are going to complete that work as, as quickly and as effectively as possible and continue with other work at the same time. Yeah, and, and this is a huge, I mean, this is a huge problem. We, you know, we mentioned that this has been ongoing for decades. And it's like now, it's like we. It's like the, at the emergency level where it all needs to be fixed like yesterday. You know, it may feel like an emergency now, but it has really been a problem for many years. And one, there are many, many reasons for it. But I think one big reason is, and this is what our alliance talks about all the time, is the, the misplaced spending priorities of the district. And, and as I said, the, the, the now defunct SRC. And that was, you know, when we would go in and speak at the SRC and speak to the members, that, what, that issue, spending priorities, was behind almost everything that we said. And so when you look at money that's, that had been spent on outsourcing and consulting firms and, and, and programs that have not been proven to be good for kids in the classroom and, and how much money has been spent. You know, the school district has an annual $3 billion budget. 
the city has a $4 billion budget. The, the, the school district has a $3 billion budget. And we need all those dollars, but there could have been many times over these years that the district could have said, we're making this a priority. How can we get this together now and right the wrongs of, of the so past? you want to take care of the exposure and stop it now, and that's crucial. For children and staff that may have been exposed, the thing to do is to raise awareness and then people can get their children tested for mm. sure mm. and can be tested. The thing to know is that anybody is going to get exposed to lead in a school by ingestion, by eating it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why there's so much concern on very young children. There is also hand-to-mouth possibility from teachers and older kids on cups of water and all kinds of Stuff ways. just coming down out the, out the ceiling onto your food or whatever. But we want to we take care of what's happening now. Yeah. That's where the money gets pulled in and mm-hmm. the budget. Lisa's right. There's a yeah. $3 billion budget. And I was, we were talking outside for a moment. There's something called the 80-20 rule, mm. which says that usually with 20% of an investment, you can get 80% of, an, of a benefit. And that's true in the district. Yeah. We need $5 billion, but with something like $900 million, we can do almost all the work. One way to do it is to tweak our budget a little bit to upgrade operations and mm-hmm. maintenance mm-hmm. And, and get this stuff handled now so parents don't have to ask the question mm-hmm. next year and the year after, hey, is my kid, was my kid lead poisoned? Yeah. Was my son compromised by asbestos. We need to fix that now, and I think we can. Yeah, and Lee, I want to ask you, are there school districts facing any major challenges, and and how are you dealing with that? I know this is a massive issue, but what are the major challenges, and how are you you addressing them? We have allocated millions, for example, lead pay stabilization. We allocated $8 million. The governor and Senator Hughes were very instrumental, and Advocates were very instrumental in, in us getting an additional $7.6 million. How much and, do you need, though? Oh, is well, that even, it seems the, like that's a tip of, a, of the iceberg. The need is far greater than that. Uh, but at the same time, we are in a better financial situation than we were years ago. Years ago, uh, there were school closures. Years ago, we did not have nurses or counselors in every school. Years ago, we had to make drastic cutbacks of our teaching staff. We are in a better situation now. And so with the funding that we do have available, we're allocating as much as possible to address the the needs in our buildings. Because again, all of our students, staff, and families, they deserve better school buildings. We we are fully uh, transparent about that and, and we're working to make things better. Yeah, and 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 I want you to respond to that. And then also, what are your next steps for your kids as you get ready to send them back? I was wondering still, is there any work being done or any plan for the kids that have been through those 40-something schools from kindergarten or Head Start all the way through third grade that are now fourth and fifth graders to figure out have they been exposed to lead in any kind of way? Is there any support for parents who work every day who maybe cannot just get a day off just to go check their their lead or or is it any support for parents to understand that if they were exposed to lead that it could have happened at school is there any support to make sure those children that may have Mm -hmm. any kind of cognitive delays or any behavior issues that could have been brought on by exposure to lead and asbestos or whatever else is at the school is that even being considered because we're talking about 45 schools in neighborhoods some of them that are very underprivileged 
and parents are already struggling. Is there any plan in place for anything like that? I mean, there are a lot of variables, and I, I definitely understand the question. And if if there is any sense that a parent has that a child's behavior is changing, we are publicly listing all of these schools. Mm-hmm. So if any parent feels that that, that that is an issue whatsoever, we certainly recommend uh, lead testing. Um, typically, you see more instances of lead exposure within a home rather than in a school, but we we do know that, that this is a possibility. And so we do now have nurses in every school. We do have a school district physician, and we certainly encourage people to seek that kind of testing. Uh, but it but it is hard to know exactly yeah. what could be the source of something Because like based on what Lisa said and, and, and what everybody's talking about, this could go back many, many years. And, well, and it does. There's no way to walk away from that. I think that we only think of houses as more acute because yeah. very young kids are there, but also because we haven't looked at the schools carefully enough. That's that's on us. They haven't been looked at in that way. And because, as Kendra is mentioning, kids are not tested like that in the schools. The district has said they will not be testing children. There are lots of reasons for that. But one thing to do is to match, as Lee said, the public information about the schools that have these conditions. And then it will probably fall on, on parents or maybe other groups to test their children and to try to make the link. On the environmental end, we have to stop it now. And the, the question about yeah. what to do if a child has been impacted is something a little different. That's an individual uh, situation for that child or that person. So they should seek medical attention in that case. And Lisa, I want to give you, I want to ask you one quick question before we go to our final word. I mean, what are your advice to parents as far as like getting in the know? Because there's a lot of people who don't pay attention to this stuff until their kid starts exhibiting problems. What, is your, what are you telling parents at the different schools to do uh, to be proactive? That, that is what we tell people. Come to the board meetings, uh, sign up to testify, tell the board, tell Dr. Height. What is going on in your school? Um, you know, what, we've been to a number of community meetings on other issues where parents have told us, come over and, and look at this. But I think it has to be, um, there have to be open ears and there has to be not uh, lip service to transparency, but real transparency and a commitment to do the work. And as I said, we're, we're, we're going to give that new board a chance. But But really, parents do have to be active and they have to be outspoken and they should talk to um, the, the people in their school now, there is an issue right now with, with Mayfair and the parents have tried to get organized, but that's, that's yeah. its own problem. Yeah. And so as we, you know, because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. So I want to give each of you about 15 to 20 seconds or less. Uh, we have just a few weeks uh, until school starts. What in your mind is the biggest positive of what has happened so far? And what do you think should happen next to make sure that whatever happens is not just a Band-Aid to this major problem. The biggest positive is that we don't have to deal with the School Reform Commission anymore. We have a new board. We have nine people on that board um, who are all uh, you know, part of the community in, in some way. But again, parents and, and educators and students really have to take it upon themselves to come down and get that message directly to the board. Finally, something is being done about this problem. Number one, that's a plus. Number two... Um, I want to add that more parents, community members, know this what's happening to be able to come out and address. 
and um, fight for the long-term rights of their students and people in the community. The work done with the Philadelphia Healthy Schools Coalition, the other advocates in working with the district around this lead project has been a real success that has pulled together the communities and can act as a model. So on the successful end, I'd say it really is a model for community engagement. What needs to happen is we need to build awareness among the educational leaders of the district uh, with decision makers and policymakers about these issues, how they matter and what it means. And we need to uh, renew a focus on targeted maintenance operation, immediate fixes to protect kids and staff in the buildings now. Last word, Lee Wack. August 27th is our first day. We have a campaign going now called um, hashtag ring the bell PHL. And uh, a couple of things are clear. Attendance is up. Literacy is up. Suspensions are down and buildings are improving. However, um, our students and staff do not have the buildings they deserve yet. And so we are going to continue to work on that. We have a lot of folks who have been working throughout the summer, um, new summer cleaning standards, new um, uh, early literacy classroom modernizations, huge renovations, um, including we're doing a lot of renovations at Steel. Um, and so, right. So we're, we're making improvements um, o- across our schools. And we're invite our big theme for this year is be a part of the progress. So I'm very thankful for everyone here. I'm thankful for your show. I think we have momentum that we can build on to get better. Thank you to uh, Jerry Roseman. Thank you to Lee Wack. Thank you to Lisa Haver. And thank you to Kendra Brooks for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, she's following the money in Philadelphia and in just months found major failures. You know, people have asked me, is it all stolen? No. Controller Rebecca Reinhardt discusses her recent bombshell audits. And what's next? We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philly residents hot under the collar is wasting money. City Controller Rebecca Reinhardt, the first woman to ever fill that role, has made headlines since she was sworn into office seven months ago. She's exposed major failures in the city's accounting processes, identifying a missing $33 million. That's right, a missing $33 million. In recent weeks, she's taken aim at other agencies like the Philadelphia Parking Authority, as well as city rules governing sexual misconduct. When elected, Reinhardt promised that she'd shake things up, and so far, there's a rumble. So I took a trip over to the Municipal Services Building to get an update from our controller. Rebecca, welcome back to Flashpoint. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, and you've been really, really busy. Yeah, I've been uh, really trying to be and uh, trying to take on and tackle some issues in the last six or seven months. Absolutely. Your most recent report released last month showed major problems with the sexual harassment and misconduct policies in the city. Sort of the idea of this audit started Mm -hmm. before I even took office, the Mm -hmm. end of 2017, when um, we heard about the sexual harassment by the former executive director at the Parking Authority. Yeah, remember that. Mm -hmm. And then there were the allegations against the sheriff, Jewel Williams, 
And the third thing that really sort of made me think maybe we have a citywide issue mm-hmm. that we need to look mm-hmm. at. The city made a $1.25 million payment related to uh, sexual assault, sexual misconduct, but it was actually assault, by a police commander to a subordinate in the department. Wow. And uh, he remains on the job today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so those things together made me think, this is something we really need to look at from a financial perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, my job as the controller, as the financial watchdog, is to make sure that taxpayer money is well spent. Mm -hmm. So we needed to look at uh, sexual misconduct policies from a financial perspective to make sure that we're not paying out on behavior that we're not fixing in terms of, you know, the the overall policies, but also just to make sure that we have a workplace that's safe yeah. for our employees. And especially with the climate and we're, we're hearing people deal with this. And so what did you find? The findings were pretty uh, alarming, pretty significant. The way the city has been handling complaints has been uh, decentralized so that the majority of complaints are handled by the 50 departments. Mm. And so what we found is a really varying degree of ability to handle those cases, to Mm -hmm. properly document those cases, and also really varying degrees of discipline. So we found departments that would give a suspension for a verbal harassment. Yeah. But then we found other departments that would merely do written warning for groping. Within some departments, what we found is that lower-level employees got punished more harshly mm. than senior level, which is backwards. Backwards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, and in addition to that, we identified $2.2 million that the city has paid out over the five years. But we think the amount is likely to be larger than that wow. because the tracking system is, is inadequate. Mm-hmm. for what the law department uses. Now, the mayor's office said that they had implemented some changes, revamped, regimented, electronic database for claims. Are the changes that you know about, are there enough or more well, There were to be certain uh, changes that were announced the day of our audit findings, which mm-hmm. I believe are, are what you're talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Um, they're good first steps. And the change that needs to happen is much more significant than that. But I would never expect that the mayor and administration be able to make those changes so quickly. Yeah. So the changes that need to happen are complete centralization mm-hmm. of complaints, uh, investigation, and discipline guidelines. Yeah. So that the it's not handled within the department. There'll be much less bias in terms of the investigation. There'll be consistency around uh, discipline. So And transparency. And transparency. Because a lot of that stuff can get buried within a department. In, Absolutely. In a way. And what we found, we had uh, a phone line mm-hmm. that employees, that we opened up to employees so that they could call in as part of the audit to say what their experience was with reporting sexual misconduct. And what we found is that many of those callers believed that they had filed official complaints, Mm -hmm. but there were none on record. Wow. So what that shows is that many departments are hearing complaints, say, yeah, yeah, like I'll talk to the person, Mm -hmm. but not detailing it in the official manner that um, the person um, that's dealing with this misconduct on them, you know, would Mm -hmm. want that dealt with. And, And it's not being dealt with the way it should be. 
So I think having it centralized, having that team be trained, mm-hmm. uh, it just really will go a long way. And from my conversations with the mayor, he's on board with that type of a significant change. Yeah, and I was wondering his reaction to this. And obviously announcing that there were already changes shows that they're open to to um yes to the, yeah yeah to i mean i've um i i think he's uh he's expressed serious commitment to changing mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. and you know i'll keep on it over the next few months i think going into the fall when council's back in session um i think that's when we'll really see the sort of commitment to change but from my conversations with him he seems very committed to it yeah so for, while folks were on vacation you were like yeah <laughs> yeah dropping new reports <laughs> Um, and another big report that that literally went national in some respect was the lost thirty three million. Right, that was a big deal, especially when city council, the mayor's office, was talking about raising property taxes. What did you find there? Right, so that uh, was part of my office's audit on internal mm-hmm. controls, mm-hmm. and what we found, um, and this is a standard audit that's done that the federal government actually requires local governments across the country to do this audit. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what we found was that um, the city has significant weaknesses in mm-hmm. its internal controls, and that sounds sort of wonky or boring, but but. What that means is that there's a larger chance for something going wrong. So for fraud, for, for example, because you're not yes. watching the, the, the coins Absolutely. in a lot so of ways. So the two biggest findings, yeah. the two material weaknesses, one had to do with the lack of bank reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the largest, the main cash account at the city uh, wasn't reconciled for close to three years. And what, for folks who don't understand reconciliation, sure. which is a technical term, it... Could you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. Right so it's it's basically looking at what the city receives every day in revenue and making sure that the numbers that the revenue department logs for, okay, taxpayers paid this much today mm-hmm. matches what's in the bank account. Yep, yep. Because it needs to be going to the bank account. So just your checkbook that you keep right. matches what's in the bank. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that's actually supposed to be done daily. And that wasn't done for, for close three to three years. years. That's wow. correct. And and I, you know, and I read that we have one of the worst, right? Know, we systems. do. We do. It so, was shocking. Yes, it really. It actually was. Um, it's one of the things, honestly, that was surprising to me. Mm. Um, and you know, I worked at the city for a mm. while. I was city treasurer and budget director, um, but I never touched upon the accounting side Mm -hmm. um and the accounting function is what is in charge of sort of the making sure the books are properly you know uh, drawn up and uh, it's one of the things that's most surprising to me actually is how weak the internal controls are so um the 33 million is when the account the largest cash account was finally reconciled and then y'all were like well there's a missing 33 million dollars it's Yes. I mean, there's there's $33 million on our books that is not in the bank account. Mm-hmm. So could it be in the wrong account? Yes. It doesn't mean that it has to. People say, you know, people have asked me, is it all stolen? No. I mean, it could be that nothing is stolen. It could be that it's just put into the wrong accounts. and But which, you don't know. But we don't know. And that's a problem. That is a major problem. Major yes. problem. Yes. So we are the worst in internal controls of the top 10 cities. That's wild. Hopefully by next year. you know. And you figured this out <laughs> <laughs> pretty quickly. 
Well, um, you know, I have a, a, a good team of auditors working for me, and I think that um, this is the type of thing when, you know, voters elected me, they wanted change. Yeah. That's why they voted for me. I mean, I, I've mm-hmm. never run for office before. So to me, this is about looking at things from a different perspective and saying, yeah. you know, taxpayers deserve more. We're giving our money. Taxpayers are giving our money to the city. Yeah. It needs to be respected, that money. And one of the things you recommend is that, hey, taxpayers should not be paying more until they figure this out. Yes. And um, I know a lot of people say, thank the Lord. <laughs> you, you I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I believe that um, we as a city need yeah. to show that we're managing money correctly. And as the controller, as the financial watchdog, I need to um, keep on it and make sure that the mayor mm-hmm. and his finance director mm-hmm. fix that. And that and that, that blew my mind because we were like, what? I had to read it and I had to read it and then three different sources just because I was like, this is crazy. Yeah. But um, yeah. But yeah. And so... Um, the parking authority. Yes. That was another one. I mean, you've been busy. That's why I said, girl, you have been busy. <laughs> so the parking authority, as a resident of this city, mm-hmm. we all know. I mean, the, the ticketing is aggressive. Very okay. aggressive, yeah. So you have aggressive ticketing, and yet there doesn't seem to be the money going to the school district that was promised to the district years ago. So by way of how the finances work, the mm. parking authority collects all the ticket money, mm-hmm. and along with booting uh, revenue mm-hmm. and, and car sales they take people's cars and auction them off they yeah. do that right so everything from on-street parking about 130 million or so collected a year then they spend money on their operating expenses the mm-hmm. parking authority mm-hmm. and then the excess about 35 million goes to the city with a little bit of a uh, escalator a cpi index mm-hmm. increase each year um, and then the remainder goes to the school district. So the school district only gets 10 to $13 million a year. Mm-hmm. So my thought on this is what is the parking authority spending its money on? Because that's a lot of money that they spend on their own expenses. Are staffing levels appropriate? Are salaries appropriate? And we hear all these stories yeah. about you know people that get jobs at the parking authority and do they need all mm-hmm. these jobs? And look, there are a lot of good, hardworking people there. But there's too many stories to not look at it. Yeah. What are the reactions that you get? I mean, you're dealing with most things that most people understand. Like, and they're like, yes, look at the PPA, you know? Right. And, you know, there's been, um, I think, a reluctance from sort of many in the political establishment to look at something like the parking authority Mm -hmm. because it's been a place where um, a patronage place for, 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 for all people that are connected. Um, but that's exactly why people want it to be looked at. Average, everyday people like Who are writing you, those me, checks. you know, yeah. right, right. So absolutely, I'm uh, looking forward to, to that one. And, and, I, yeah. and I remember, funny, it's like when I, one of the questions I asked you is what keeps you up at night uh, when you came in uh, to the KYW studios and you were like, well, you know, the politics, I'm going to upset some people. Yeah. Um, does that still keep you up at night? Um, it doesn't keep me up at night. It is a byproduct <laughs> of what I'm doing. <laughs> yes. So I'm starting to um, get more used to it mm-hmm. and uh, just say, you know, I'll take a few, you know, punches in order to win the battle type of thing, you know. Yeah. And, and so I'm getting more used to it. Yeah, because yeah. you, you don't seem like you, you're bothered uh, by this. Um, and then you looked at the beverage tax because that mm. was a big thing. And, yeah. and it was a big controversy. There were protests and everything like that. And and you uncover that pre-K, which was the big selling point, isn't really getting 
even they're just giving a very fra- small fraction of the money. Right. So the the soda tax, and I, um, I supported the soda tax when Mayor yeah. Kenny proposed it uh, because I support pre K. And I mean, I have an eight year old daughter, and I know how important pre K is, and so. Um, I supported it. But at the same time, I feel that if you say that you're going to tax something for for a specific thing, you need to spend it on that, right? And so that's what my office looked at, just the money coming in from the soda tax and where is it going. And the mayor had said, uh, well, we weren't spending it because of the lawsuit um, and now, you know, as of now, start spending it. So you'll My check po- again. Yeah, absolutely check again. Absolutely. that that's um, We'll keep checking. I mean, uh, ideally, it would have been in a special escrow account so that it would have been completely separate. Mm-hmm. It's not. Can't win everything. But, yes, I'll be back on that one. <laughs> you are making folks check. Uh, check on You're checking on everything. I People am like trying. This. I'm um, trying. Um, so what are your next priorities, and how do you determine, you know, what you're going to look at and, and what have you? Yeah, well, in terms of the next things, we have – my office has an ongoing audit of behavioral health spending. The billion dollars there, plus, yeah. billion plus. plus yeah. A, yeah, and that um, is scheduled to be completed in the fall. That will be a big one, spending over a billion dollars a year, mm. having no review of uh, – no performance audit for 20 years – I think I know. So the way that I'm trying to focus in on areas is to say, you know, where is the largest opportunity for inefficiency, for waste, so that we can find dollars Mm -hmm. uh, to either redirect towards services or not raise taxes. And a lot of the areas that I pick are areas that aren't touched, haven't been touched for a long time for political reasons, which... And that makes, makes me charge wonder, forward. Though, it's just like, what was going on before when these are like, this is a huge bucket of money. Right. It is and absolutely. it wasn't looked at. Mm-mm, it hasn't been. There's a status quo sometimes that, that occurs, but that's exactly what I'm sort of pushing up against and what really energizes me mm-hmm. about having this role and being in this position is that I have the voice and the power to look at these things that matter so much to people all across the city. You're definitely doing things differently. You had said when you were running that you were going to save the city. You knew you could save the city at least $10 million. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. think that number's gone up? Um, I, I have confidence in that number, but uh, we'll keep talking as the year progresses uh-huh. and see where where, uh, where we go. I still mm-hmm. think that's um, on the low side of what we can accomplish. But, yeah, um, as you go through things. Absolutely. You mentioned, talked a little bit about your relationship with the mayor's office. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you drop these, you know, new reports and audit reports, do you think it's going to stay that? It seems like it's a good relationship so far. Um, it's been mixed, I think. Um you know, there has been some backlash from the mayor's office on the the internal controls finding, but on the sexual misconduct audit, uh, we're more working together. I think that it really depends. I mean, my goal is to uh, collaborate when possible uh, with the mayor and um, his office, but it's not always possible if the implementation isn't treated with the seriousness that it it should be, mm-hmm. um, then I have to take a strong stance independently. So I think we'll probably, it'll probably, you know, have its ups and downs, but yeah. um, hopefully more on the um, ups and downside. Yeah. Know? And I, other than the, the way that the internal controls work, you said that's the most surprising thing mm-hmm. that you, yep. you've experienced yeah. so far. Anything else surprised you that you were like, whoa? That's an interesting question. And there's something probably almost every day, a little thing that I'm, mm-hmm. I think, wow, that's 
that's weird and we need to look into that. Mm-hmm. So I also have a, a fraud unit that's mm-hmm. uh, in the controller's office that we've revamped and just uh, staffed up with um, uh, career investigators, a former DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency uh, agent, and several other people to really um, work with the auditors in my office and go after financial fraud and then you know, work with the U.S. Attorney General in, yeah. in our area or the State uh, Attorney General, Josh Shapiro, so the DA. So I'm excited about that angle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, things surprise me. All the time. All the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. They do. But um, it keeps it, it it keeps it interesting. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity to save money and make things work better. And that's sort of, that's my goal. And uh, people deserve it here. How's your daughter handling the transition now that oh. you're like fully in office? <laughs> she's good. She's fine. <laughs> I mean, she's going into third grade. So she's good. She's getting more used to me having, you know, me having conversations on the street. Yeah. You know, and with people, people knowing who you are. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the that was the big adjustment for her to say, you know, mommy, hurry up. <laughs> yeah, do that. But other than that, she's she's great and um yeah, yeah, everything's good. And my last question for you is when you look back after this term is over, what are you hoping that people will say will yeah. be the reaction? I hope that people say, "Wow, she really had an impact mm-hmm. and she really made the city work better." I think that there's a lot of room to instill trust in government by actually using taxpayer dollars well. And yeah. so if there's more trust there, if people say, you know what, I think the city is better run now, that I would feel really good. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, y'all, that is the Philadelphia controller Rebecca Reinhardt. She's following the money and, <laughs> all, and uncovering all sorts of things. Absolutely, yes, I'm trying. So uh, thank you so much for having me today. And thank you for being on Flashpoint. Oh, thank you, Sherry. Next up, an effort to empower youth dealing with homelessness. Being by myself in the system, it made me more vulnerable. The young leader behind it all and an upcoming effort to turn teens into advocates. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. A total of 300 unaccompanied youth were reported homeless. During the city's 2018 point-in-time count, homeless youth are exceptionally vulnerable and face challenges beyond finding a place to sleep. Well, one teen is using her personal story to empower others and to change the laws. With me in the studio to discuss their ongoing effort is Corey Dixon. She is a youth healer with Youth Healers Stand Up. Welcome to the KYW Studios. Thank you so much. So tell me, what does Youth Healers Stand Up do? Basically, it's a group of youth that have been through homelessness that go out in the community and we facilitate, we advocate for homeless youth. We also go out in communities like Bertram's Village and we teach the youth how to advocate for themselves so that way that their communities can stand strong. Mm-hmm. And you're only 17 years old. 18. 18 now. Congrats. Yes. Happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thank you. And so I read about you and you said in the article that you feel like you're a 50 year old woman. Yeah. And why? Because, you know, I've been through so much and I'm so wise for my age. Like, And she head. has a baby face, y'all. <laughs> why was a group like the Youth Healers necessary? 
for folks like yourself? Well, we have people that speak up for like adults, but we don't have anybody to advocate for people our age, Mm -hmm. for youth that are babies to like young adults. And I just wanted to be that because I didn't have anybody in my corner when I was going through placement issues and all that kind of stuff. When I was going through homelessness, this program would have really been good for me. Being by myself in the system, it made me more vulnerable to people being able to take advantage of my lack of knowledge is me not knowing anything about the system. And so then you linked up with PEC mm-hmm. and sort of realized you wanted to help other young people like yourself. Yes. So that young people are attached to organizations, yes. attached to yes. social services yes. that could help them navigate through life yes. because you're developing, you know, your sensibilities. You're still trying to learn how to navigate the world and to also be dealing with insecurity issues, housing insecurity, yeah. food insecurity, and, and not to be stable in that area. is just. It, it adds trauma. It yeah. can be very traumatic. It's very like some youth feel stuck at where they're at. So that's basically our job is to provide support. Yeah. And I understand that you guys are going to be having a very unique event coming up in mm-hmm. August, August 18th. Heal the Future Conference. Youth to facilitate their talents, their abilities, while also highlighting key issues within the community and other social injustices. And so you're going to bring youth age 13 to 24 together. Yes. You're going to be at Cedar Works. 4919 Pentridge Street. We're actually registrating right now. So basically it's going to be like different workshops where different youth organizations can connect with other youth organizations because every organization has a different type of strategy. So we're basically learning off each other and the different things that we can do to better our organizations, better the community. And better your life. You know, congratulations, Corey. Thank you. Pulling through, making it to 18, first of all, (laughs) and then not just doing that, but then planting the seed and so many other young people through the youth healers stand up. And you're even influencing lawmakers, I understand. We spoke with Senator Stafford trying to pass a bill on why foster youth should get more compensation to go to college because a lot of foster youth don't have families to support them. They drop out of college because they don't have the funds. The bill is called HB 1745. We're just trying to get them to fund foster youth so that they can go to college and make a living for themselves. Yes, and and people need to know about this. And as we wrap up, I know you're living now in a community home Mm -hmm. and that you'll be starting your senior year. Yes. Yeah, congratulations (laughs) at Kensington Creative Performing Arts High School. So, I mean, you're literally walking around as an example. So a lot of these young people that that are going to come to the conference on August 18th are going to be looking up to you. Oh, wow. Okay. How does that feel? Uh, (laughs) If I could stress anything, I just want everybody to know that God loves you. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Stay positive. Yeah. And my last question is, how can people help? We're inviting decision makers to our conference. Give some money. Right. (laughs) Give some thoughts, some good ideas. PEC-CARES.org slash youth. Check it out. So thank you so much, Corey. Congratulations on everything you're doing and good luck to you. August 18th, check out the Youth Healer Stand Up Conference that is coming to Philadelphia. Thanks so much. No problem. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow Flashpoint Show on Twitter and let us know what you think. 
You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms and search Flashpoint KYW. There's an issue that makes you hot under the collar? Let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As America's 42nd President Bill Clinton once said, if we want to invest in the prosperity of our nation, we must invest in the education of our children so that their talents may be fully employed. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.